Amen. Amen. Yeah, we can clap. Thank you, Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's great to be back together um, in this new week, in this new month. And uh, just by way of reminder, um, if you weren't here yesterday, uh, we've, we've turned a corner in our series on identity as a part of our overarching theme of abundant life this year. And uh, we're, we're ex- explicitly exploring and applying um, the, the role that culture plays in our understanding and our application and how we live out our identity in Christ. And uh, you, there's a lot of different uh, discussions and a lot of different perspectives uh, surrounding how one's culture influences our understanding and lived out expression of our identity in Christ. And the, the, the really the, base, the bottom line is that, you know, the church is, is not a stranger to um, confronting lines of division that the enemy tries to sow that's, that are built up by his lies. And we know when we read in Ephesians 2 that, that Jesus Christ has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and creating one new man in place of the two. So wherever there's division, um, we, we are called to lean in to, with the authority of God's truth and uh, with, with the gospel to dismantle anything that's dividing um, us as God's people. And uh, what, we've, in what was introduced yesterday and what we'll continue on uh, this morning um, by having Daniel Hill, uh, an author and Christian pastor from the Chicago area, of talking about how the narrative of racial hierarchy is one of those divisions uh, within God's church, within uh, the Christian community, and how we can understand it. Um, so that we can lean into uh, it with the authority of the gospel narrative um, and, and confront it uh, with grace and truth. And so um, I want to invite us to continue to lean in with humility, with curiosity, um, and to continue um, what you hear this morning in chapel into conversation. And uh, we'll be continuing to share about different ways that we can do that within our community. Um, and next Wednesday night, there'll be an opportunity to do so, talking about um, this, this topic in particular um, with a forced table talk that'll, that'll happen in G115, 7 to 8 p.m. next Wednesday evening. So, uh, but Daniel Hill, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm starting to lose my voice a little bit already. Um, he is a, a founding pastor and senior pastor of River City Community Church in the Humboldt uh, Park area, neighborhood of Chicago. And Daniel has done extensive work on reconciliation efforts in the city, uh, has contributed to the, the broader conversation uh, regarding race and injustice. He's been studying this for over 22 years and uh, has most recently, wrote, most recently authored a book called White Awake, An Honest Look of What It Means to Be White, something that I've read and picked up and need to reread and want to continue in discussion. I've learned a lot about who I am, who Jesus is, and who I am in him. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to have him back with us this morning, and I want to invite you to once again, would you please give a warm Northwestern welcome to Pastor Daniel Hill. <clears throat> and uh, would you pray for him as well as we pray for our own hearts this morning. Father in heaven, we want to thank you and praise you for your goodness. That you are the author of all that is good and right and true. And I pray that your goodness would prevail this morning as we would behold your beauty as we um, would be able to stand before your throne of grace this morning as your redeemed people. And Father, I pray that your uh, truth would rule and reign and be spoken in and through Daniel, that it would rest upon healthy hearts to receive. And Lord, that your truth would dismantle deception, would drive out fear, and, and it would drive out our, our pride. And Lord, that your kindness would lead us 
to repentance and that we would be refreshed in your presence together this morning. We love you and we praise you and thank you for loving us first and for being our good shepherd and continue to shepherd us, Lord Jesus, towards abundant living. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning, good morning. Um, thank you for having me two mornings in a row, and especially those of you who were here yesterday and today. You came back, thank you. Um, yesterday was the harder of the two, so um, uh, for what that's worth. Uh, I, I think this is such a great conversation y'all are having. We, we talked about the abundant life angle yesterday and kind of how John 10.10 can help us to think about the problem of race in today's society. When we get to the identity question, that, that's one that when I wrote the book, Wide Awake, that was really the driving question for me. Um, I've spent most of my life trying to understand who am I in Christ. And, you know, when it comes to identity from a Christian perspective, I think this is one of the mysteries of the gospel. Like you can answer clearly that who I am should be formed by my identity in Christ. And yet that's still a long journey to actually live fully into that, right? To, 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 to fully um, internalize what it is that God has spoken over us and to kind of become different people who are driven by that. And so when I was working on Wide Awake, that was really the, the driving question, what is identity? And any of you who have studied this at any level in your classes realize what I kind of quickly came to, there is so much material that has been written on identity. I mean, it is such a vast, vast, vast subject matter. So I tried to read as much as I could, but it was overwhelming. And even within the Christian, in the broader sphere, of course, there's not so much, but even in the Christian sphere, there is so much written on identity. And so I want to honor the fact that there's so much out there. And I want to kind of just pose two questions. I really think, I think it's fair to summarize when people are talking about identity, we're talking about two questions. So I want you to think about these. These are, I think, very concrete things that you can come back to on a regular basis. When we're talking about how identity is formed, in fact, will you repeat these with me? Question one is, who am I? And how do I fit in the world? Who am I? How do I fit in the world? These are really how you come to answer these will more than anything determine what your sense of identity is, all right? Who am I and how do I fit in the world? And, you know, the research basically shows that when you're young, you're not actively asking this of yourself yet. You're basically being told the answer to this, right? So your parents, if you're, if you're able to grow up with parents or primary guardians, you know, the, the adults in your life are the ones who tend to, like, answer for you who you are based on family lineage, based on what, where you're at. There's all different kinds of things that inform us on that. Certainly we want kind of our Christian beliefs. But the research really shows so it's really junior high and high school where we start asking these questions for ourselves. Who am I and how do I fit in the world? And we don't have time to do this, but I sure would love to do it because for some of you, that's not actually that long ago that you're in high school, right? And so one of the funny kind of stories I think we can do, but revealing, uh, I think it's just human nature. When we're in those high school years especially, we start trying on different outfits, right, different identity outfits to see which one fits me, right, and so I would like love to go around and hear the stories, like, which, what are all the outfits you tried on? Were you, did you try the jock outfit on? Did you try the cheerleader outfit on? Right, did you try the cool but nerdy intellectual outfit on? Right, did you try the mysterious artist that nobody ever really gets fully, you know, did you try that outfit on, you know, were you the goth skateboarder, you know, like, what, like, what were the outfits that you tried on? Um, when I was writing the book, I kind of came back to my high school years to try to answer those questions for myself. And so um, uh, I don't know how old you would guess I am seeing me. I'm 46, um, which one of the unique distinctives means that in my high school years, I got to see the invention of what is now called boy bands. 
right? Well before you had a Backstreet Boys or any of those kind of, there was the one in original, and that was a game changer for me when it came to these questions of who am I and how do I fit in the world, because none of the outfits were quite fitting right, but then a band came that, you're too young, you maybe have read about this on Wikipedia, that's probably about as far as it's going to go for you, but uh, there was a band, they, you were so cool if you, went, if you talked about them by their acronym, their acronym was NKOTB. Oh, some of you know who that is? Oh, that makes me feel so... New Kids on the Block. New Kids on the Block was a game changer for me. And so um, when, when these guys came, uh, now they're all super cool. I mean, if you can pull off those shorts, you know, you know I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's cool. But this is Jordan Knight right here. And I knew I was nowhere as cool as Jordan Knight, but like, I felt like I could pull off enough of a resemblance that like, maybe I could associate myself with him, and all the girls in my, class, in my school were crazy about Jordan Knight. And in fact, you know, Justin was just up here, he said his sister had a new kid in the block pillow that she slept on every night. I'm like, yes, that's my era right there. Like, uh, so I, I, I studied Jordan Knight as I thought about these qu deep questions of identity. And um, this was the image, this was the defining image. Now that's again Jordan there with the, red, with the red vest on. My guns were bigger than his, but other than that, you know, uh, um, I, I wasn't sure I could pull off the vest, but his hair, I literally, I aquanitted it to perfection to try to get it like that. And I think you guys are going to appreciate this next part more than any, coming from a kind of a Christian concern. My dad was a pastor. It was very prohibited to have earrings, you know, and so he had the silver hoop, which was like his defining look. And so I knew I couldn't permanently get my ear pierced. But I would do during junior and senior year, on my way to school, I would pierce my own ear. Which, here's a myth that you should never buy into. They say that if you put an ice cube behind your ear, it makes it less painful. That doesn't help at all. I would still do it that way. But I would, re I would pierce my ear every day. And um, you, know, you know how ear piercing works. It closes back up, right? Yeah, after, so I'd, <laughs> I'd wear a silver hoop to school and then take it out again before I got home, hoping that it would close up to a to degree. And he never knew. So I pulled it off successfully. So um, that, 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 uh, it's a silly way to get to some deep questions of, like, consciously or not, we're always trying to sort out who we are, right? Um, we're always asking these questions, who am I? How do I fit in the world for one era of my life? The answers to that would have been <laughs> Jordan Knight and using him to uh, try to answer those questions for myself, right? So, um, so there's always the right answer, Jesus, but then there's the, all the other ways that we're also trying to figure out who we are, right? And so that's some of what I'm kind of inviting to consider. What I want to do today, though I will make the connection to race, I mostly want to develop the theological framework, how I think about identity. And I don't suspect, at one level, I don't suspect I'm going to say anything that's super different than what you've thought about. But I would like to suggest um, this is kind of the dynamic that's always happening. When we're asking those questions, who am I and how do I fit in the world? Let me just say it plainly what my thesis is. And I'm going to spend most of the time on this and then we'll just make a bit of a connection to race on it. Here's my thesis, that those two questions, who am I and how do I fit in the world, there's not one but two supernatural forces that are trying to answer that question for you. Your identity formation is happening at the intersection of a supernatural contest. That is how I believe the Bible described it. Clearly, the most important voice of that is God, right? That God is speaking over us and into those questions, who am I and how do I fit in the world? But I really do believe, I think when we look through the lens of the worldview of the biblical writers, there's an activity, a presence and an activity of evil that is also trying to distort those questions for you. Who am I and how do I fit into the world? And so I think there's a lot of places where we could see this. I, I want to 
I want to go to what's for me the most important passage in scripture. I know you're not supposed to like say something's more important. I just mean at a personal level, this passage has influenced me more than any single other passage in scripture. Um, we know it is the baptism of Jesus. So again, I don't suspect this is going to be something you've not seen or interacted before. But I'd like to use this passage as a way to kind of think about this framework of identity. So, you know, some version of the baptism of Jesus is in all four gospel accounts. I'm just going to use Matthew's in this. In this. So, important, lots of things that are so significant of baptism of Jesus, right? It's where kind of he was coronated as kind of the coming king. It's what pre, you know, he doesn't do any public ministry before this moment. So there's something about um, receiving this blessing from the father that's really significant. Um, one of the ways, one of the reasons this passage has so influenced me is, I mean, again, as a pastor's kid, I had always heard of the baptism of Jesus, but I never really thought of it as being relevant for me. I thought, well, of course, Jesus is going to get <laughs> this kind of a blessing from God. That's not for everybody. But one of the things that really helped me see, besides just the obvious theology, that because of what Jesus has done, we can experience this ourselves. One of the things that's important to me about this is the chronology of when it happens. Um, when I reflected deeply on the baptism of Jesus, I realized it revealed kind of a, a lie I had kind of internalized about God, that the only way you really, this is my version of a lie, I don't know how many of you would believe this, but for me, I've often bought into a lie that the only way you can really trust that God speaks over you in a powerful way is when you've done good work, right? So in my church upbringing, we used to always kind of have the saying where you're going to meet God face to face someday and God's going to have you give an account of your life and then hopefully at the end you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? And so that's kind of the chronology of how I would think of it is that you do the best you can for God. You hope to kind of be righteous and in line with what God wants for you. And then you'll get that blessing at the end. Right? And it like really blew me away when I realized Jesus didn't get this blessing at the end of his ministry. He got it before he ever did anything for God. Right? So these words, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I really want to focus on the words that... Um, Jesus himself heard God speak. And here, because I don't have time, I can't really fully develop these things, but I will just state it plainly. Here's the three parts of when I think of what God wants us, to, how God wants us to answer the questions, who am I and how do I fit in the world? I think it's the three parts of the blessing that God speaks over Jesus in the baptism. And when, when, when God speaks over Jesus in the baptism, he says, A, you're my son. All right, so I think, theologically speaking, for me, I would say, Living deeply into this sense that you're a child of God is the most significant starting point for developing a sense of identity. Right to, in fact, I would even say worship. While I think worship is important that we sing back to God, I think when we sing back to God, we're just, we're just singing back over the words that God has already said to us. And I think this is the starting point of worship. God looks over you and says, you are my daughter. You are my son. And then it goes to the second part of it, that we are the beloved right? All three parts of these are linked, kind of pointing to who we are in Christ. Um, God speaks this over Jesus. He says, You're, you are my son. I love you. And then the third part, the one I actually think is the most difficult for most of us to actually believe, as beautiful as the first two are, I think it's the third one with the hardest to believe. The third part, God says, and I take pleasure in you. I delight in you. Right? It's one faith jump to believe that despite your sin and mistakes that God loves you. It's a whole other faith jump to believe that God actually likes you. <laughs> that God sings over you. That God delights in you. That God takes pleasure in you. And one of the reasons that I think this baptism account is so important, and even it's, it's so interesting, you know, in, in all the versions, there's different ways of doing this, but in this Matthew version, I even like um, 
uh, they, they, he invents a word that's like not even in English. It says, it, he saw the spirit of God ascending like a dove and alighting on him. Alighting <laughs> is not even a word. Uh, but it's almost like the translators just know how to get to this. Something so, when we hear in the deepest kinds of ways who we are in Christ, I think something supernatural happens. I, I think something lights up inside of us and shoots out that just human language fails to fully describe. That's what I'm talking about. It's, it's supernatural. It's not just an intellectual right answer. It's like there's this repetitive kind of process we need of going deeper and deeper into this blessing of who we are. As an aside, I think it's really interesting that this is what Jesus hears at the beginning. And when you, when you, go, when you go to the transfiguration, which is basically at the end, Jesus hears this, the exact same progression again from God in the presence of the disciples that are there. You're my son. You're my beloved. I take delight in you. Right? I think this is where our journey begins. I think this is where our journey ends. This is the wholeness, I think, of growing into who we are in Christ. That would be my take on the pathway of Christian identity. And while there's a whole much more, that's me, that's like worth a whole sermon just there, just kind of reflecting on that and continuing to come back to that truth. For the purposes of kind of this back to race, I think it's also important to remember that identity is, like the important part is that God is speaking this over. But I think that's why I wanted to, I wanted to include just the very beginning of chapter 4 here because, at least for me, I often forget that the temptation of Jesus Christ, for significant as that is, I often think of that as something really distinct from the baptism of Jesus. But really, th th those are like two parts of the same experience. Jesus hears these words from God, and then the next thing we see is that he's sent by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And in so many ways, I think what Jesus experienced at the beginning of his ministry becomes kind of the motif of how all of us who are saved by Christ kind of experience this ongoing repetition where we, we do our very best to put ourselves under the blessing of God, under these transforming words of God. And it ain't 10 seconds old before you're going to go back into the world and you're going to feel the evil one attacking the very thing that God just said. And while I think each of the temptations, it's, it's worthwhile to kind of look at what's unique about each one of the three, I think looking at a macro level is really helpful for seeing how the evil one attacks our identity. At the most core level, I think the evil one attacks how we think of God and attacks how we think of what God has said about us. Right? Um, the devil comes to Jesus in the temptation and says, if you are the son of God, which to me the most important word in that sentence is if. Right? Because Jesus had just heard those words that he's the son of God he had just heard that blessing that you are the beloved you are I take delight in you and the next thing he hears from evils if you are the son of God right it's a challenge to the very word that God had just spoken to him right if you are the son of God turn this stone into bread if you're the son of God jump from this pinnacle right but it's a challenge to the blessing to the belovedness to the transformational words of identity that Jesus had just heard and that's why I would like to suggest that identity is always being formed at this intersection of, I think there's a supernatural contest behind it. I don't want to be spooky when I say that, but it's obviously if God is the one speaking it, that's supernatural, right? And I think there's supernatural evil that tries to distort that. You know, if you go back to Genesis 3 in the garden, right? God has given Adam and Eve the whole garden and a serpent comes in and tries to divide them from that, right? I just think that's the human experience is asking these questions. Who am I? How do I fit in the world against this kind of larger backdrop? Most importantly, the voice of God saying, you're my daughter, you're my beloved, yeah, I take pleasure in you. But we've got this kind of reality of evil. I'm not going to go long on this, but we did yesterday, you can hear a little bit longer version of this. We went to John chapter 8, 
where Jesus gives the most kind of crystal depiction of how the devil works out of anywhere in his own teaching. And he says it like this. He says, you, he's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him, right? So this is, the, this is the war. Jesus is speaking truth over us. The devil has no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so if we had more time, but I, so again, I'll just say it, and then I realized it's worth processing more. But at the end of the day, when it comes to identity, I think one of the greatest resources the Holy Spirit has given us is, if I can say it this way, it's kind of God has given us the ability to have voice recognition system, right? That he helps, Jesus wanted to see, I think one of the most interesting parts of John 8 is that, is that Jesus says the devil has a native tongue, right? You can actually learn to recognize the language of the devil. It's lies. But like when you learn any new language, it takes a little while to like get fluent in recognizing it. And this is I th so much of what I think is growing in Christ, is learning how to recognize truth for what truth is and to live in the brilliancy of that truth and be changed by it. And I think we have to learn that just in the same way that when, the, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, which is kind of a reenactment of Genesis 3, when the serpent does that to Adam and Eve, we have to learn to recognize when lies are attempting to disrupt us from what God wants to be said over us. All right, are you tracking with me on all that so far? Because that's kind of, that's the case I'm making theologically. I do want to make a connection point to this with race, but you all kind of tracking with me on this notion of God's transformational truth that God speaks over us being kind of where identity comes from, the devil trying to kind of distract us from that to not have us fully live into that. You hopefully tracking with me. I don't really know how to get a pulse check on that. You're all just staring blankly at me. So I'll assume that means that's a strong yes. I'm going to interpret that as a strong yes. Um, let, let me do, so we, we, we've got a few more minutes here before you all run to class. So let me like kind of pause there for a moment and make a little bit of a connection now to where I think race, the system of race plays a huge role in this. Now here's something I, I'm going to name, but I can't get into. I got into this yesterday. Yesterday we talked about the difference between ethnicity and race, for those of you who are here. And so ethnicity, I think, is a reflection of God's good design. It's not ever something you should be ashamed of. It's not ever something you should be embarrassed of. It's not something that should be demeaned or dismissed. I think it's a complete reflection of God's goodness and sovereignty. That's not what I'm talking about today. Yesterday, we talked about this term, and Justin said it in the introduction. Yesterday, we talked about this term, the narrative of racial hierarchy. All right? And the system of race is built off of a lie which is why I think it's such an evil enterprise. It's built off of a lie that challenges the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is built on the Imago Dei, that human value comes from who we are as image bearers of God. Right? We're created in the likeness and image of God. That's who we are. That's where our truth should come from, both for ourselves and how we see others. Race totally challenges that truth. Race is built on a lie that says human value does not come from the divinity of being an image bearer it, uh, from, from God's divinity and we're image bearers of that. It does not come from that. It comes from where you fall on this racial hierarchy. That this racial hierarchy was created to justify some of the like really horrible things that have happened in our history, to justify colonization, to justify slavery, those being the primary two things. And just to name it with all of its ugliness, now I'm not talking about white people when I say this, I'm talking about how the system of race works. The system of race said whiteness is what's most human and most superior. The narrative says blackness is what's most inferior, what's most subhuman, which was really necessary to justify slavery. And then it kind of creates an image, it creates a value system for everybody else off of that. 
And we could talk about all the ways throughout the history how certain kind of narratives have been used for Latino folks based on this hierarchy. Certain narratives have been used for Asian American folks based on this hierarchy. Narratives have been used for indigenous folks based on this hierarchy. Narratives have been created for mixed race folks based on that. We just don't have time to go into that. What I'm trying to suggest today is that that's the, that's the sophisticated but powerful lie that race has always been built upon. And that has huge impact on how we think about identity. I'm looking at the clock. All right, I, I, th I have time to, th let me stay in there of racial hierarchy for a minute, because in my mind, um, Christians can't stand up to race until they understand the narrative of racial hierarchy. That's as simple as I see it. Um, Christians have got to learn to understand the truth of how God talks about who we are, the lies of how race talks about who we are, and be able to organize themselves around that. So let, let, let me take a story from um, a pastor's thing I was at, a name that I think is so important in doing work around race right now is Brian Stevenson. He's the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative which if you're interested in exploring that, they have so much good stuff on their site. It's just eji.org if you want to kind of learn more. I know you're already studying so much in your classes, but it, he, he's really worth kind of tracking. He's doing so many interesting things. Um, but his work is around in the, in the incarceration system. He, he represents folks who are on death row. Um, it's just a staggering statistic. His organization alone has overturned 175 death row convictions which regardless of what somebody would even think about the death penalty, the fact that somebody was accused of something, given a death penalty, and then the evidence was found that it was actually incorrect and they were not guilty, that would be scary if one person that happened to. Right? 175 have been overturned so far in the work that they've done. But the, the, his, his, he's one of the most thoughtful people about race, and when he tries to help, especially the kind of white folks who are engaging with this, understand race, he always talks about the narrative of racial hierarchy, right? So I was at a pastor's thing with some mostly white pastors, and a white pastor said, I'm not trying to sound like, I, I realize it's going to be risky to ask this question, but you keep talking about the, the, the legacy of slavery. And he said, I don't understand that because I never owned slaves myself. Uh, my, my parents didn't immigrate into the United States until the 1940s, so I don't even have a family legacy of slavery. Why, as a white pastor, should I be so concerned about the legacy of slavery? Because I'm not trying to sound like I'm just, I'm just confused. And so here's how Brian Stevenson answered it. I thought it was so significant. He said, he said, it's not even just slavery I want you to be understand. It's the narrative of racial difference. And here's an exercise he pushed them on, and I think in white Christian spaces, we have to really wrestle with this exercise. He said, he said, forget your own family when they came here. He said, I just want you to imagine 40, 50, 60, 80 years ago, whatever, whatever it would be, or I guess more than that because slavery is over 1865. But um, he said, slavery could not have existed without white Christian support. Right? Slavery could not exist without white Christian support. That's not to say there wasn't the abolitionists here and there. That's not to say there wasn't the faithful remnant that pushed against it. But by and large, it could not have existed without white Christian support. It was this, that's who we were. We were European Christians who were kind of forming a Christian nation here. It could not have survived. And so he said, let's not like demonize them and, and act like they're so different than us. They went to church on Sunday morning, church on Sunday night, read their Bibles every morning. You have to ask the question, how is it that they got so comfortable with the notion of one group of human beings owning another group of human beings. Like he really pushed our group to sit in that. Like how, how did they find a way to believe that? He said, it will never make sense if you don't think deeply about truth and lies. Right? They had the truth of scripture in one hand, but the lie of the narrative of racial hierarchy was so profoundly agreed with, you know, that uh, this notion that there was kind of a human order that could justify one group owning another, that it, the lie of the narrative of racial difference trumped the truth that scripture talked about for at least a period of time until it was overturned. 
And here, this, this, I never forgot this moment. It's where something clicked for me in a way I would never forget. He said, did slavery end in 1865? It did. And thank God it did. He said, but slavery could not have existed if the narrative hadn't been there in the first place, the lie. And that narrative is still in the soil. Right? And he said, how many of you garden? And a few you know, people raised their hand. He said, what happens if you pull a weed but you don't get the root out? He said, it'll always come right back again, right? He said, this is the problem we are in, is the lie is still in the soil. We have not uprooted that lie yet. All right? Now, let me push this even a little bit closer identity. How does this shape identity? Who am I? How do I fit in the world? I'm going to tell it in one story form, and then we're going to kind of move towards the end. Um, one of our African-American pastors at our church, you know, he does a lot of work working, working with kind of some of the white folks in our body, and there's this one family in particular that cares deeply about this, really asks him to help invest in them as they're understanding race better, and they've got two beautiful little girls, and they're trying to, like, figure out as parents how to do this, and so they had spent, you know, probably a good year talking about this, and, and Brandon had gotten to know the two girls in this family well. The oldest of the two was notoriously shy, and so there was this big, just silly little moment on one Sunday after church. There's a playground across a busy street from us, so they were crossing, and the little girl grabbed Brandon's hand for the first time, and so Brandon was feeling very happy about that, you know, that she had finally warmed up to him. So they're walking across the, the street, and she looks up to him, and she goes, hey, Pastor Brandon, can I ask you a question? He's like, yeah, sure, sweetie, what's up? She said, you're not going to shoot me, are you? And he said, what? Why would you even ask a question? Of course I'm not going to shoot you, but why would you even ask a question like that? And she said, well, that's what black people do, right? Black people shoot each other and maybe shoot people like me. And I don't think you're going to do that, but you're not going to, right? And he, you know, she's eight, so, you know, he didn't make a huge moment out of it. He reassured her he's not. And then we talked about it, and he was trying to figure out how to bring this back to the family. Because if you would hear a story like that out of context, you might think, well, that's some kind of racist family from a backwoods kind of a place or something like that. Um, but this is actually a family, I mean, I can attest to it, they care deeply about this issue and yet by eight years old this girl was already thinking like this right now should she be shamed for saying that she'd be shamed for thinking no i actually think that's the wrong idea we actually have to find ways to expose the lies that we've internalized but this to me shows how real the lies of the nerve of racial hierarchy are by eight years old despite living in a family who cares deeply about this being in a church that's multiracial she had already fully become familiar with the lie that where somebody falls on the hierarchy dictates what kind of behaviors you might be able to expect from them, right? And so those are the kind of things that make me think, I mean, if by eight years old, she has already taken in some degree of that lie. If I'm 46, how much have I taken that in? Right, this isn't about am I racist or not a racist. This isn't about am I on the right side or am I on the wrong side. This is about seeing the sickness of the lie and recognizing that even as God sings over me of who I should think of myself to be, there are lies in the atmosphere that are trying to poison that, that are trying to disrupt what God is trying to say. And so that's one of the ways where I see race playing a very significant role in how we think about identity. Right? For many of you who are not white, you've had, to, you've had to spend much of your upbringing reminding of yourself who you are in Christ and using that as a resource to combat the lies you're hearing in society. Right? That's not a shock for a lot of you that there's a lie about who you are based on your skin colors in society. I think it's often those of us who are white who have the most difficult time with this because our survival was not dependent on sorting through truth and lies around racial messaging, right? And so it's almost like we now have to take what we're learning now and look backwards and say, where are the moments where I heard that lie? And what are ways that that maybe got into how I see myself and how I see my neighbor, right? And I see this as being incredibly, it's always important that this is centered on the gospel. Final Im image, and then I promise I'll get you out of here in time for class. Um, Pete Scazzaro uses this image 
in his book, um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, but as Minnesotians, you can appreciate this. It's a Midwest imagery. It talks about kind of in pre-technology days when um, on, in farming communities, when a big blizzard would come in, and they, they would actually call it a whiteout, which is kind of interesting. But when a whiteout come in, um, sometimes a farmer would run out to try to get animals that had strayed or escaped and try to get them in. And sometimes the blizzard would come in so intensely that the farmer could no longer see, and he would only be a few feet from getting back home, but he couldn't get back in because he was kind of blinded by the blizzard, and so he would actually die out there. And so, simple little solution, but what farmers started figuring out to do is when a blizzard came, you can't run out with no anchor point. So they would tie a rope around their waist and then find the most solid part of the structure inside and tie the rope there. And then they'd go out, you know, to retrieve whatever animals. And then if the, they started getting storms, it's like, oh, I've already got this rope. You know, I'll get back, I'll get back home. I think of that as the way that holds us all together. The gospel proclamation over us that we are beloved children of God who God takes delight in is the rope that has to hold us to the foundation of God's truth. And I think just like the Spirit led Jesus to go contend with the devil, I think that's our job as Christians, is to contend with the lies of the devil in society. And it's one mistake not to contend with the lies, but it's another mistake to go contend with the lies and not be tied to the truth. Right? I think the balance is when, just like those farmers, we tie it to the anchor point of who we are in God, and then we go out into the world and start taking these lies on head on and exposing those lies and proclaiming truth over those. Amen? Can I do a 15-second prayer over you? And then you can, uh, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's stand together as you kind of get ready for heading out to class. Let me just briefly pray over you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the student body here at Northwestern. May you deeply reveal yourself in both um, uh, ways that make sense, but ways that transform who they, how they understand they are. May you overwhelm them with your love and send them out into the world on mission, exposing lies and bearing witness to your truth. And all God's people said... Amen. Love you all. Blessings on your day.